Christmas Just like the ones I used to know Where the treetops glisten And children listen To hear sleigh bells in the snow <clears throat> Sorry, <clears throat> my lord, sisters, hello and welcome to episode, of oh, sorry, bonus episode 35 of Movie Musical Memories. I don't know why I'm very rusty. Um, I mean, it's mostly because I don't talk anymore. Um, my, my, uh... Levels of talking have greatly, greatly gone down. If anybody knows me, they know if I get to know you well enough, I will yap my trap nonstop and never stop. Um, that's the thing about me. Um, and it's been a ongoing thing, um... Hold on. Is this... Oh, yeah, okay. Sorry, I'm pulling up the Wikipedia for today's episode as I'm starting the episode because I'm an idiot. Um, what I was trying to say is... Um, something you should know about me is... Um, I always say that I make friends by... Um, not accident, but friends by association, if that makes any sense. In high school especially, especially when I started, I, I always credit, like, late junior year into senior year when I started becoming a bigger face in the SGA. And I was finally getting to know people in my grade who I never interacted with in class because they were way smarter than me and I was always in the dum-dum classes mostly because I mean well I was in the dum-dum class I mean I was not the dum-dum of the class if that makes any sense you know they used to have a level and b level I definitely would have made it to the A-level classes. They needed to go back to that differenti differential point because, um, you know, there were some of us who were there to actually, like, I mean, I wouldn't say I showed up to a chemistry class actually actively wanting to learn anything, um, but, you know, there were people there who actually, you know, cared about passing the class just for the sake of passing the class. Um, anyways, um, something that I just, I mean, and this happened a lot during high school, especially when I was the only person, like the only old person in the class pretty much because, you know, French class was different because, you know, I was a junior in the like French one class. So I was with a bunch of freshmen and some sophomores and, you know, I was only, like, that only happened because I took Latin my freshman year, and 
it wasn't that I didn't enjoy it. It was just, it got really just stupid to me. Just like grammar stuff. Just, and you know, I, he would give us tests that were like a hundred questions. So it was very easy to just like fail one of the tests because it was like such a catch-all type thing. And, um, I don't know. Like, I like the history in Latin, but I hated, like, the actual, like, the sentence structure and the grammar stuff. It, and that's kind of what French 2 gets into. And that stuff is just so, like, I, I, it goes right over my head. Um, but that was the thing about French class, too. I, I enjoyed the culture. I mean, I enjoy learning some words as well. But I definitely enjoy the cultures of those language classes. This has nothing to do with what I was trying to say. But, you know, I, I'm i the one. It's you, you would be, if you know who I, like, if you personally know me, you, people are like, what are you talking about when I say I'm not really an extra extrovert or whatever that word is and more like I don't know I'm one of those insecure people who doesn't like to be their true full bombastic self until I kind of I always say that I'm like kind of watching silent silently watching or you know getting getting the temperature of the environment so I don't come off like I don't know. Some people have come up to me and said that you know, your your snark can come off a little mean, and I'm like, it should never be that way. You should always know that I'm rarely being very serious whenever I'm being snarky. If I'm being snarky, I mean, you will know if I don't like you through my snark. But you know, if I find a joke. I will go for it. Sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> Sometimes I walk myself into a bad trap because I'm not a comedian. <laughs> but, you know, I'm better at acknowledging that I made a bad joke more than a bunch of comedians. Anyways, who fucking cares? What I'm trying to say is not being at a movie theater where I am forced to talk all day, every day, and there are actual things to talk to other people with, um, and, you know, just, I don't, like, get on Zoom or FaceTime with anybody, so, me talking, the, the most I've talked during the quarantine are when I record episodes of this podcast, pretty much, um, so, that's why I started off really rusty, even though, we did talk a little bit. I went to the movies today. I saw Promising Young Woman, which was very good, um, with Carrie Mulligan. And, um, you know, I mean, the only talking I really did was when I went to the cashier at Barnes & Noble and when I went to the cashier to pick up my food. So, you know, I t maybe said no more than ten sentences today. But, you know, that's just been the way the quarantine has gone, where I will say very little dialogue to other people. And, you know, somebody, I was just watching an Instagram live show that I um, watch every Wednesday whenever they feel like 
<laughs> keeping on the schedule. Um, and, you know, they were talking about how, like, when things, in air quotes, get back to normal, like, what what are, like, the, like, the returning to society kind of speed bumps of, like, oh, am I going to just be my, ex- I mean, I'm still going to be eccentric around the people I feel comfortable being eccentric around, and I'll probably have a whole lot of things to talk about with people, but, you know, it's one of those things where we're going to, as a society, have to ease back into our normal um, life patterns. Um, but this was my whole issue in college, where um, I swear to God, I mean, the first two months, so yeah, I, I get I get to college like the third week of September for the orientation period, and then um, October was like the first full month, and then the second month for some reason I got two online classes, which was not technically supposed to happen, but it worked out that way, so even less kind of contact to any other people, but that first month of college was especially dreadful, but, like, the combo of those first two together, where I just, you know, they put you in a class with literally a hundred people, because they, like, the first kind of the class that everybody has to take, and you're in classes with gamers and musicians and just all kinds of people you don't want to be hanging out with, and, like, I couldn't find the film people and the people who I did find. I, like, I tried to, you know, ease into them, but, you know, some of them rubbed me the wrong way, and I'm sure I rubbed them the wrong way, too, because I hated that class and did not understand the purpose of that class. It was called Digital Literacy, and it made absolutely goddamn no sense why it was class. And I think they did actually get rid of it, like, literally the month I graduated. I'm like, why did you give us this, such a useless class that I failed? Because it was so useless. And I was just like, what? So, yeah. And then I went home for a month in December and did that class again online so somebody else could help me. We paid him. Uh, well, I'm, I'm not trying to do a Lori Lachlan over here, but, you know, I, I, I had a little bit of help in terms of a tutor, <laughs> in quotations. Who fucking cares? Happy five years since I've graduated college. How did that happen? I haven't done anything. And, you know, that was by fear. And here we are. I'm still recording a podcast that is also almost five years old because I started this out of sheer boredom of being back from college in my hometown where I did not want to go after I graduated college because my exact fears came true. There's no jobs in Maryland for people who want to make movies or television Unless you're John fucking Waters, and he hasn't made a movie in almost 20 years. Anyways, um, what was I trying to say? I was trying to say that, you know, I uh, this happened with me at both jobs, too, at the doing Pizza Hotline and uh, 
E Street where, you know, I kept to myself. I just, you know, I was very quiet, like, the first. I usually, it's usually, like, two months that I kind of, I kind of get the patterns of other people and the way other people talk to each other. And even, you know, at the pizza place, one of the women were like, why don't you, like, why don't you, like, we're having fun, like, or, like, why don't you smile more type thing. And, like, once I kind of got in on their jokes and things that they do and, you know, bad habits that bug each other, that's when I, like, go all in. And when we make fun of all the different customers who just make us drive us crazy. But, you know, I did that with Easter too. There are customers who drive us crazy. There are customers that are hilarious. And then there's co-workers who are just the same. Which, you know, you once you reveal information about yourself, a little bit of backstory that you're a theater person and you're this and that and that and you like this and you get common ground. That's when you get more comfortable and you can get very weird with somebody. I always that's that's how that's what happened with my friend Jessica from college, where, you know <laughs> if I mean, once this has been six years now since I filmed my documentary for the class, and that's kind of where me and Jessica became really good friends. We created so many just stupid <laughs> inside jokes from shooting that movie, and then then on it was just a whirlwind. Um, but yeah, so <laughs> this quarantine has been, you know, college 3.0. Maybe. I don't know. It's one of those things. And, you know, I didn't really mean to make it sound as pitiful as I did. You know, Twitter is what has really, you know, kept me... I mean, kept me sane is a very loose thing to say about Twitter in 2020. But, you know, I've met people through what we call film Twitter. But, you know, just like funny people who share niche jokes that I follow and, you know, people that I've become good chit-chatting people on Twitter. Um, I, I I made a tweet or something about how, like, you know, I was like, I would love to get off Twitter, but, like, this is literally all, like, my... This is my social life. Literally, the social network is my social life. And they're like, that's really sad or like he didn't I I didn't take it as like a judgmental thing but it definitely came across like a yikes like get some fucking friends dude and it was like yeah you know I text with a few of my co-workers from the movie theater sometimes but once again we never hop on the zoom or the facetime or anything we just text and even like with um you know, Facebook with Jessica, I'll message her and stuff, and, you know, that's the extent of everything, but, you know, welcome to my life story. Today we're talking about the movie musical White Christmas, because Merry Christmas, you get to spend Christmas with me rambling about a movie that I had never seen until this year. And I, weirdly enough, I saw the staged musical version of this before I saw the movie. 
and um, why we never covered it in the old version of the podcast is because this is one of those instances in the golden age of movie musicals in the 50s that um, it is, you know, it was a movie first and then they made it into a musical. Yeah, the musical didn't even premiere until 2004 in San Francisco. And it played like a limited engagement on Broadway in 2008. And now it's just one of those like gets done by every community theater. Like, because, you know, there's very, it's not, it's not that there's like a small amount of Christmas shows. There's definitely a bunch but, you know, after you do theater for, I've been doing theater, PTP, for 12 years, if, like counting the maid stage show. Um, but, you know, I've been, like, going to see shows at the theater for probably 15 to 16 years consistently now. And, you know, we're back at the cycle where we're doing Beauty and the Beast, which was a show, one of the shows that I auditioned for in the yesteryear where the only role I really could play was Chip and I'm not getting into that but you know nepotism um <laughs> don't don't start no, don't don't get me on a tirade we're already 20 minutes in um you know holding 10 12 year old grudges that's definitely great <laughs> I always say, I'm, I'm Sweeney Todd, never forget, never forgive. Uh, I hold grudges. You know what you've done. There's a few people where we can bury a hatchet, but I will never forget what you've done to me. Um, that will never leave my mind. Anyways, what was I talking about? Like Christmas. I was talking about, you know, like, but like the our, our theater... Technically, it's like eight years is the the minimum of how long we can wait to do another show. And also, there's like an added thing if like one of the, like the college or I forget what the other, I don't know if it's Hard Bargain or one of the other local theaters, like if they do a show that it's like another four years we have to wait or something. Um, I don't know. I can't remember. I'm on the play reading committee, but we didn't meet this year. Um, but with Christmas shows, there's really no minimum, like, distance. Because, you know, it. it's just not a, it's not as long of a list of shows that we can pick from. We always, like... We did Sound of Music at Christmas time because it's a family show. And, you know, Annie is a show you can do year-round, but it ends with Christmas. So you can say that's a Christmas musical. Um, and, you know, we did Beauty and the Beast at Christmas time. And that literally there's one scene that, like, takes place, like, outdoor in the snow. And people are like, Christmas! <laughs> Next year... Um, we would have, I mean, this time last week, we would have been doing our final week of Hello, Dolly, which would have been my first B 
big main stage assistant directing job. And we're going to wait till next Christmas to do it. And I don't know, I was very surprised that we were mounting this for Christmas time because Hello Dolly has nothing to do with Christmas. It's just kind of, you know, a f it's a family-friendly, in quotations, kind of thing. It's a family-friendly musical. There's really nothing risque about Hello Dolly. I mean, there's a couple, like, you know, the It Takes a Woman song is a little, you know, people call it sexist now, but it's like, come on, this song was written... <laughs> This is taking place in the early 1900s. Like, come on now. Um, we can't we can't wokeify Hello Dolly. Um, what was I saying? But yeah, that the show has nothing to do with Christmas. But you know, it's a family friendly show, so who knows? Um, I'm very excited to do it. Um, you know, I I was actually. Because they announced that we were doing this in February, so it, I was at the meeting. I'm like, should we start planning now? Like, this is going to be here before we know it. And everybody else on the team's like, yeah, we'll talk about it later. And, you know, they were correct. My pessimism, it wasn't my pessimism. It was more my, like, um, we got to get the ball rolling here because all this is going to be in July. Um... But they were correct in the lo long run because, um, you know, show gets delayed a year later, which is kind of what I wanted because I was, like, it wasn't that I was unprepared. I was just like, well, shit, we gotta get rolling. But anyways, um, I don't know where the spiel's uh, Christmas shows. So um, the show we do to death because, you know, it makes all the money and people ask about it and the, the the thing that audiences don't understand is the reason why we don't do a show every year like a specific show every year is because the actors get tired of doing it and it just becomes one of those things where it's like if nobody wants to do the show and you want to see it something's not clicking here um, but, you know, we've done a Christmas Carol. So I was in a Christmas Carol in 2009, right? Yes, because I was a freshman in high school. So we did that in 2009. And then there was a version in 2011, which I still think is the best version that I've seen from the group that we've done. But here's the thing. So they did one in 2010. 13, because it was an every other year thing for a while. The 2013 one, I think I did see. The 2015 one, I definitely did not see, because it was like, the final week was the week I came home from college, and I was not in a rush to go see A Christmas Carol for the 500th time. And then when they ended up doing A Christmas Carol again, that was when I first moved to my first apartment. So I have not seen the last two Christmas carols that have been done at my theater. Um, but so that's been six in the last 11 years we've done A Christmas Carol. But 
In between that, we've done It's a Wonderful Life, which I also was in. I was young George Bailey, and also I can't remember what my name was from... I was in Act 2 in the current day. I was one of George Bailey's sons. It was very weird in the timeline where I was the father of my sister in the show, but also my sister. It was very weird. And then, like, six months later, I played her father in Willy Wonka. Doesn't make any sense, but, you know, the theater. Um, and then, what else happened Christmas show-wise? Um... So it was It's a Wonderful Life, Christmas Carol Again, and then it was Sound of Music, which I was in, and then it was A Christmas Carol Again, I believe, and then 2014 was Annie, 15 was A Christmas Carol, 16 was White Christmas, which we're talking about today, 2017 was The Christmas Schooner, yes, that was 2013. 13, 17, and then they did Christmas Carol in 2018, and then last year they did Elf, which was um, Elf the Musical, and we've been trying to do Christmas Story the Musical, because I've always said, I was like, let's just do the Christmas Story play, because I remember seeing that, um, that was one of the first shows I saw from PTP, but that was when they were renovating the theater, so they did the show at one of the high schools, so I kind of didn't make the connection, um, but I kept saying, I was like, why don't we just do the play, um, but there's a musical version now that we've been trying to do over and over again, but somebody else always gets the rights before us, and it just, then I think we've tried to get Mary Poppins done, and that has fallen through, so... You know, these are, like, the options we have for Christmas shows every year, pretty much. Um, I mentioned, like, She Loves Me is technically a Christmas-time musical, but, you know, there's some, like, depressing elements and some sexual window-window in She Loves Me, so that's not fun-for-the-whole-family type musical. Um, yeah, so, White Christmas... Is one of those kind of shows like, you know, I mean, It's a Wonderful Life was not a play before they made the movie. That was definitely made after the fact. And um, Holiday Inn is kind of in the same vein as White Christmas. It's Irving Berlin, um, where the movie came out first and then they made a musical version. Singing in the Rain was this first way. And none of them have been really successful critically. And some of them have not really made much money. But, you know, American Paris was kind of like this, but that actually made money. Um, won a few Tonys. Lost my voice there. So, yeah, so we're talking about White Christmas, which came out in 1954 for some reason on October 14th. You know, some things never change. Premature Christmas movie openings. Um, at least nobody does that anymore in October, like mid-October. I always will complain about the Bad Mom's Christmas release, where they, for some reason, decided to open it on November 1st, which was a Wednesday. Why, first of all? 
It's like, it's not even a holiday week, like, other than Halloween, but, like, it's not like a Thanksgiving where you open it on a Wednesday and that makes sense. Or, you know, usually Christmas time they'll open things on Wednesday just to get a head start from the Christmas rush. Um, no, but, um, the, the, you know, nowadays we always do the, like, the day before we'll do a 7 o'clock and, like, a 9 or 10 o'clock show. And they did two of those on Halloween night for a bad mom's Christmas. Who is going to see a Christmas movie on Halloween night? And, you know, the movie, I think, made good money, but, like, it didn't have the legs I think they thought it would. It's like, you could have waited the first week of December. There was nothing new that was big that came out that weekend, and it would have been probably more successful that way. Anyways, um, this movie was directed by Michael Curtiz, who is famous for directing Casablanca, correct? Yes. Um, and I've recently discovered, because of Mank, there's discussion about that, you know, there's just been this biopic called Curtiz on Netflix for, like, I don't know, it was made two years ago, and it's just been on Netflix. I don't think it's a Netflix original, but it's just been up there. And, you know, people were, like, comparing it to Mank, and so I'm going to check it out in a couple of weeks, or a couple of days. Um... But people say it's not that great, so I'm keeping my expectations low. It's like a whole, a whole bunch of people that nobody knows. Um, but what was I saying? It was directed by Michael Curtiz, and it was written by Norman Cran Krasna, Norman Panama, and Melvin Frank. Thank you, Melvin Frank, for having a name I can pronounce. Um, and the music, as I said, is by Irving Berlin. And it stars all of the hottest musical stars. No. Um, Bing, Bing Crosby is, like, the icon from this. But also you have Danny Kaye, Rosemary Clooney, Vera Ellen, and Dean Jagger. Um, yeah. And, uh... I have it on the television right now because... I don't know why I planned this, but, you know, I mentioned this when I was recording one of the podcasts that I was, like, I watched it, like, two weeks ago, and I'm like, why did I do that when I wasn't planning on recording the podcast until the week of the episode? I don't know. <laughs> it's stupid. Um, so, White Christmas is about, um, it's Christmas Eve in 1944, and World War II is happening, and former Broadway star Captain Bob Wallace and aspiring pro former Private Phil Davis are, like, entertainers for the war people. The war people. Look at me, I'm so stupid. The army. And, um... Um, hold on. Um, they get to leave for whatever reason, um, oh, yeah, so the war ends, that's why, um, and then they move back, and they, um, 
see these this this um, double act um, Betty and Judy. Yeah, they perform at a nightclub, and um, <laughs> I'm trying to like. They always give me these really wordy plot descriptions on Wikipedia. Um, I don't know, for long story short, they have to like put a show in it on in a, um, like a barn. And that's pretty much, I mean, yeah. How do you, let me see if I can get a better plot description for White Christmas on like IMDb or something. Um, Google. Anyways, um, my prior knowledge to this movie, I mean, it's just, you know, that, why is this iPad not working? Um, it's one of those classic movies that I just never got around to. Here we go. Um, singers Bob Wallace, Ben Crosby, and Phil Davis, Danny Kaye, join a sister act, Betty, Rosemary Clooney, and Judy Haynes, Vera Ellen, to perform a Christmas show in a rural, in a rural Vermont. There, they run into General Waverly, Dean Jagger, the boys' commander from World War II, who they learn is having financial difficulties, his quaint country end is failing, so what the foursome to do but play a yuletide miracle a fun-filled musical extravaganza that's sure to put Waverly and his business in the back. Now why couldn't Wikipedia have such a simple plot description like that? Thank you Wikipedia, always looking out for me. Why am I opening Facebook while I'm recording the podcast? Back to Wikipedia. Um, so my prior knowledge, you know, the song White Christmas is a staple. And I, I, I know some of the images and the song from it. But, you know, seeing the musical at my local theater was like the first real, like, introduction to the actual show. Or the movie. And then um, I got White Christmas. I don't know if it was in a batch of movies that somebody gave me or I actually bought it at a thrift store, I feel like it just came in a batch from either Miss Joya or I don't know how I got this movie, but I think it's on Netflix anyway, so if you want to watch it, watch it there. Actually, I should have actually tried to compare the image quality because the DVD is quite, you know, it's rough around the edges. Um, I'm sure a Blu-ray of it might look cleaner, but you know, I always get in fights with people online about this. I really don't give a shit when it comes to the difference between DVDs and Blu-rays. I just stack up on the DVDs because they're usually cheaper. If they come in a DVD-Blu-ray combo pack, I will get it because that's very convenient. And usually it comes with the digital code. But I'm always like, if it's one or the other type situation, I will always go for the DVD. Mostly because what what I use my DVD collection for is practically being a library. I give movies to friends to watch 
and co-workers to watch. And not all of them have a Blu-ray. This is the thing. Blu-ray did not win the, the, the operating wars. It barely is still around. Um, I think they technically have stopped making them or something. I don't know what the newest thing about it is. But you can still watch them through like a PS4, which of course I don't have. Um, but, um, I don't know, just like your everyday average person in middle America, when they go to a store, they 90% chance have a DVD player versus a Blu-ray. And they 90% also do not give it flying shit. What, and then they probably still don't know the difference, even though we made so many ads about Blu-rays and the difference of the image quality. My thing is, sometimes when I'm watching something, I think it's too clear, if that makes any sense. It just all looks phony to me. It's the whole film versus digital debate that so many directors get all up in arms about, about how when they watch a digital movie, they just feel cheated. This That's Quentin Tarantino's thing. To me, I rarely can tell if something's been shot on digital versus so There are things that are clearly shot on digital. I mean, that is definitely something you can tell. But, you know, unless you're watching an old film, it's really hard for me to, like notice what was shot on film versus digital um but the whole debate like with blu-rays versus dvd i i just get in a fight with people because my whole thing this year is because i've had i mean <laughs> at the height of the summer when i was getting actually good money from unemployment you know i had a lot of money to spend i mean not a lot of money to spend, but, you know, money to spare to make me feel happy. Part of, like, I was not worried about paying rent as I am now because I also was not really anticipating still being here. I always said that, you know, if I'm still like this November, December, yeah, I'm in trouble, but I didn't think it was going to be like this still in December and you know I'm probably going to have to get a new job next month if this $2,000 check doesn't come in um I mean the $600 one might I might have some more time to wait but you know I just I feel like the moment I get a job I'm going to get an email from E Street saying come back um and I will be back <laughs> definitely don't want to get a different job. I That is why I've been holding out for getting a new job. Anyways, what I was trying to say is, you know, there are Facebook groups that, like, Criterion fans are part of, and, you know, I posted my image of the first batch of movies I splurged on on the Criterion page, and everybody was up in my fucking mentions going dvd what about blu-rays and i'm like um because the dvds are cheaper and i'm like and i'm just like and i also like to share them with friends and they don't have blu-rays so like oh i would hate to have those types of friends i'm like i didn't fucking ask you so i stopped posting 
photos of my collection on any of those snobby fucking Facebook groups. Like, I knew when I decided to join those that I was going to fucking hate people after it because there's so many snobby people in those groups. I mean, I've what I've learned this year is I didn't realize how, like, many people find Tarkovsky as, like, the almighty filmmaker of all time. If you don't know who he is, you probably are not a virgin. I'm just kidding. Um, he is, like, a Russian director who directed, like, Solaris and Stalker. But, you know, I feel like I open up my Facebook and one of these groups come up and it's like Tarkovsky this, Tarkovsky that and I'm like, what the f- I don't fucking care and I don't know what you're f- like I finally watched those movies and sure, they are fine films, but like shut up <laughs> I mean, it's one of those things it's like, the David Lynch people as much as I enjoy David Lynch can get over the top and the, um Who's another one? I don't even know. Lynch is, like, always, like, the go-to one. Oh, like, the Terrence Malick ones are the worst in terms of, like, just because I hate Terrence Malick. But, no, these Tarkovsky nerds have gotten on my fucking last nerves. I don't know what I'm talking about anymore. I was talking about the Blu-ray debate. I was talking about the image quality of the DVD. Anyways, White Christmas is on Netflix now. And it's one of the rare movies that was made before 2010 that is on Netflix. Um, anyways, my review, it's a delightful film. Um, great gowns, beautiful gowns. I'm looking at Rosemary Clooney's great, great gown. That's Rosemary Clooney, right? Yes. Um, I don't know the difference between... Oh, they look exactly the fucking same. Whoever the character who's in the black dress for that number is great, and I'm watching her right now. Um, Rosemary Clooney, of course, is the aunt of George Clooney, and I'm recording this on the day that um, George Clooney has a movie that he directed and stars in that has debuted on Netflix to zero fanfare, um, to the point that I was like, I have not seen one marketing ad, and then, of course, one comes up, like, the moment I tweeted it, but it was, like, a day before it was released, and, like, I mean, George Clooney has been making the rounds on all the talk shows, but it's, like, other than that, this movie does not exist to anybody, (laughs) and... I saw it in a theater because it looked like a movie that should be seen in a theater. And I sat there and I'm like, the plot is kind of boring, but it's really beautiful, like, in the grand scope. And I was just sitting there, I'm like, this movie is going to play horrible on Netflix because you're not getting the best part of it, which is the grand scope of the images and the visual effects. And then, like, the story is going to be even more hard to sit through at home. I've just, I've always had this conversation about Netflix. I don't understand what their brand is in terms of their films. Like, 
And what I've learned, especially this year, is they are they are just kind of the McDonald's of the of like the streaming people now. Because now that we have this like top ten chart that we can see, and you know, just from word of mouth on Twitter, from like what's like become a meme and what's like really just stayed in the conversation. I mean, I've learned that, like, just the dumbest, lowest common denominator of movie that Netflix produces is what the people want. They want your cheesy rom-coms starring, I don't even know, Noah Centineo and those people, The Kissing Booth, all of those types of movies. The, the Netflix people do not give a shit about Mank. Or the trial of Chicago 7. And like the trial of Chicago 7 was a purchase be- due to the pandemic. So that's not that much of a fault. But the midnight sky. Like who wants to watch a movie like that's like a big space epic type movie on your small screen. It makes no sense. But this was my whole thing, like, when they were really starting to get their footing in the original movies department, where they kicked it off with things like um, Beast of No Nation and um, First They Killed My Father. And I'm just sitting in a movie theater watching First They Killed My Father, and I'm walking, and I'm like, who is just going to throw this on on Netflix? It doesn't make any sense. I mean, first of all, foreign films are more pleasurable to watch in a movie theater because you don't get distracted from reading the subtitles and stuff. But it's like, who is going to watch a movie from Cambodia that Angelina Jolie directed about, like, Cambodian genocide just on a Saturday night? Like, nobody. Nobody watched that movie but me when I saw it in a theater. But, like, Roma is a movie that you should see in a movie theater, and people did. That's the thing about Netflix movies when the movie theaters are open. If a movie gets the word of mouth that it needs, like a Roma or The Irishman, because it's Scorsese, and, like, Mank probably would have done much better if the pandemic was not happening in a movie theater, because the people who care about Mank are the people who I talk to all the time at the movie theater, who say, I'm never, I'm not getting Netflix. I don't know how to work that shit, and I want to see everything on a big screen and whatever. It's like, that crowd does not have Netflix and aren't going to subscribe to Netflix because of it. If Mank finally plays on TCM, that's how the that crowd will finally watch that movie. But it's just, it's one of those things. It's like, of course... <laughs> millennials don't give a shit about the writer of Citizen Kane and his process of writing that movie and not even about the making of it and it's more about like the politics of the time and I'm starting to kick in that I'm very tired and should go to bed soon because I do need to wake up a little bit earlier tomorrow so I need to wrap up my thoughts about white Christmas and not this rant time going on but what I'm saying is to bring it back into the Christmas of it all the Christmas Chronicle movies are what the Netflix viewers are watching they're watching the prom because the prom is 
you know, the big splashy movie musical. And I was going to open this episode by going, because I, the last few episodes I've been like going on a long rant about the latest discourse. And the only discourse since the last time I recorded a podcast has been the opening of the prom. And it's the discourse that I anticipated. But like all of the Netflix movies this year, after a week, silence. Nobody's talking about the prom, except for me, because I love it. I've been rewatching it. But, like, we, we all move on. We do what Jake Gyllenhaal sang to us via webcam at the 90th birthday of Stephen Sondheim. We moved on. And I'm moving on from whatever that rant was. Um, but, yeah, it's a good movie. Um, beautiful, technicolor um, and all the performances are great. I don't really think there's a weak player, so no Pierce Brosnan Award. Um, I would probably give the Liza Award to Rosemary Clooney. And the, um, Razzle Dazzle Award probably goes to either Sisters or, um, what is that song called with the black dresses? Is it choreography? Is I don't know. Oh, love, love you didn't do right by me. I believe that's the song. Um, I don't know. Uh, what else do I have to say about this movie? Not much. Um, it's a classic that I finally caught up with. Somebody was asking us, like, what's the big Christmas blind spot that you have? And I said this, um, but I was trying to think, and then I realized I've never seen the Bill Murray Scrooged, and I've never seen... There was another Christmassy movie that I've never seen. Because last year I finally caught up with, like, the entirety of European... Or, sorry... Uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Because, like, I'd seen parts of it as a kid, but never seen the whole thing. Um, and, like, a few years ago, I did Gremlins, which... It's a Christmas, in quotations, Mark movie. It takes place at Christmas time. Um, I don't know. There was, like, a couple more that hit me that I had never seen. Because I finally saw Meet Me in St. Louis a few years ago. I think last year with Judy. If not the year before. Uh, I don't remember now. I've seen, I think, the major ones. I think this was the last big blind spot. The thing about Holiday Inn is it's not a Christmas movie. Because it's like, the whole thing is that it takes place at multiple holidays. I've never seen Holiday Inn, the movie. I've seen the recorded musical with Corbin Blue that um, was on Broadway HD for free, but then they played it on... Or they played it on PBS first, and then I got to watch it when they did a free stream of it on Broadway HD for non-subscribers over the summer. And then um, it was back on the PBS cycle. I need to wrap this up because I'm about to pass out. Um, fun facts. I'm really just speeding over everything here. Um, I went over the stage adaptation thing. Um, you know, the movie is 
Of, of course, Botsley Crowther, the New York Times critic, was not impressed. He was a sour, sour salt about everything at this time. Um, the movie... Um, It was the top moneymaker of 1954 by a wide margin and this, and was the highest grossing musical of all time. Um, maybe for inflation purposes, it still has that title. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, well, you know, The Lion King is like... Oh, last year's The Lion King, not even, like, <laughs> the good version. I don't know, like, none of these are technically, like, actual movie musicals. Like, it's all the animated ones. Mamma Mia still holds the highest for, like, actual movie musical. Um, like, Alvin and the Chipmunks, the Squeakle is kind of a stretch. Lame is is, like, the next one that <laughs> looks like a movie musical. Because, like, La La Land made... I'm actually surprised that La La Land made more money than Les Mis. I don't know. Because Les Mis was a wide release. La La Land was, a like, an art house movie that got wider and wider. But, hey, what what are you going to do? And like, The Greatest Showman, A Star is Born, this, sure. Um, and then, like, Grease, Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again... Mary Poppins Returns is kind of original. The Polar The Polar Express on this list. The Polar Express is not a musical. There are like two musical numbers in that movie. So White Christmas is not on this list. So yeah, it was the highest grossing movie musical of that time. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, the timeline of the highest grossing movies. Here we go. Um, it was closely dethroned by something called The Vagabond. Um, it's an Indian crime drama. What? I don't know what that's trying to say. Uh, well, and then White Christmas regained the throne in 1960, and then South Pacific took it over. 1961, I don't know, <laughs> I guess because movies just played forever and ever in theaters, I don't know what this chart is trying to get at, anyways, White Christmas, <laughs> what more do I need to say that you don't know, it's great, great gowns, beautiful gowns, great musical numbers, the feather, the sisters feather dance with the blue feathers and dresses are, are iconic, and when they did it at my theater, that was also iconic because those two ladies are great. Becky Coon and Jeanette St. Clair. Um, and then it was... It was Matt Usina and then... Was it Bradley Sylvester that played the other lead? I think so. And then... Yeah, I think that's how that shook up. But yeah, it was a very good show, and of course it sold out, and they were actually considering remounting it when they were kind of 
in a bind with the whole Christmas story Mary Poppins thing. But yeah, White Christmas. Um, anything else I want to say about White Christmas? I don't know. Merry Christmas. This is going to come out. I'm probably going to publish it tonight, um, the 23rd, because I'm going to the, um, the, the, the world of very pitiful Wi-Fi, which is my old home. Um, and then, um, I'll see you next week on New Year's Day, um, counting down the best movie musical or the best musical moments in movies and really all media of 2020 something I haven't done technically in two years but last year I did a written like a blog post of just a top 10 but this year I will finally get to do a uh, actual podcast again of it and I'm glad that I have not recorded that podcast yet because as I complain with all of the premature top 10 lists and just, you know, even like the Facebook Who Weekly group that I'm part of, that's a subgroup, which is kind of like a um, all kind of media kind of subgroup. Um, you know, they were doing these polls for like a good two weeks at the beginning of December of like our favorite movies, music and stuff. And it's like, and the guy even said, it's like, if you complain that's too early, I'm going to delete your comment. Just as he was joking, but you know, but it was one of those things where it's like half of these movies are not available to non critics or people who went to a virtual festival for one sold-out screening. Like, I had not seen Nomadland yet. I hadn't seen... Like, nobody's been able to see The Father yet, unless you're a critic. Or got the AFI screening for it. It's just like... I don't know who you're polling here. This is why Birds of Prey ended up being our best picture of the year, because that was a movie that everybody saw. It's, I don't know. <laughs> And then, like, of course, like, all these Taylor Swift snobs, it's like, she released a new album, like, a week after we did this poll, and, like, thank God we didn't include that, because why would we need two fucking Taylor Swift albums on this poll? But this was the whole thing when Beyonce released her um, surprise virtual album, which is the album titled Beyonce, that came out like a week before Christmas and all the publications had already published their top best music of the year list and then even people called them out when they tried to sneak it in on their next year's list. It's like, no, that album came out in 2014 or 2013 and then kind of blew up more in 2014, but it's like, you don't get to rewrite the calendar because your editor-in-chief for some reason wanted to meet a quota that for December 1st. This is my whole rant about that. It's like, people don't care about your end-of-the-year list in the beginning of December. And in a 
you know, a non-pandemic year, Time Magazine was always the one, or, I mean, Time, they were the ones who were really pushing it, releasing their top, their best movies of the year list, like, the second week of November, and it was like, who the fuck are you writing to right now? And this has been kind of the whole debate on Twitter right now. It's like, I mean, I don't really agree with the notion of, like, um, you're including all these movies that nobody's seen. Who are you writing to? It's like, well, no, that's not how a top ten list works. This is the whole, uh, I mean, the whole top ten, top ten discourse is stupid because a top ten list is a subjective thing. When you're saying these are the best movies of the year, it's to the eye of the beholder. It's not, like, by a criteria, these are the best movies of the year. No, that's not how that works. So when people always reply to these things, they're like, but what about, but what about, well, what about? And it's like, shut up. There was a reason why it was left off the list. Because there were ten other movies somebody liked better. That's usually the case with a lot of the movies that people want about. Uh, and the com the publisher will reply, it was number 11. Or, I don't know. It's just one of my things. It's like, I enjoy seeing what people put on their list. I don't necessarily agree with the movies that they enjoy. But, like, that's their opinion. I'm going to release my list. Everybody's going to be all snotty about me putting the prom in either number one or two or however that shakes up. Sorry. There were not that many more movies that gave me joy this year like the prom did. But the whole discourse now is because people are like, well, you should include, like, where you can find it. It's like, is that really the critic's job? I mean, it's helpful, but it's like, it's not their job to like be like, well, this is where you can find this movie. Um, and it's us and the whole kind of debate of who are you writing to? It's like, you're, I mean, you're writing your opinion. You were asked your opinion of what the top 10 movies of the year were, and this is it. And if people want to read it, that's, the objective is for people to read it. But it's like, the thing is, it's for your devoted readers to know the taste of the critics that they enjoy. This is the whole thing about my pro-Rotten Tomatoes argument. It's like, I would not know who half of these critics were if it weren't for Rotten Tomatoes. It's like, that is the, out. It, I don't care about the overall kind of score. I mean, I kind of do, but, you know, as years go by, I don't really make that number. I really care if if it's really, really low or really, really high is kind of when I get really, like, worrisome about what the number is. Um, but, you know, there are critics who I would not have known until like, recently, just been on the interwebs, but, like, I've linked to other critics through following critics who I discovered on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, I don't know. My whole thing with the whole list thing is, 
release your list the last week of December. I know you all have a magazine that you want to publish this for, but some of you don't. Some of these publications that people work for don't have magazines anymore and are just online. It's like, why can't you wait till the last week of December where we're all in the mindset of ending the year? Um, and it's also the whole thing. And, I mean, it happened this year with Wonder Woman, even though, like, my thing is, like, of course Wonder Woman is not the type of movie that, like, all the critics are going to put on their top ten list. And for the last few years, it's been the annual Christmas Star Wars movie. And it's like, they don't screen it for the critics in time for these lists and these critics' awards. And it's just, it's kind of, like, embarrassing to, like, their jobs that they have not seen all of the movies that have been able to be seen. Because, like, no critic can in their right mind, in their sane mind, see every single movie in a year. Even though I try to up it, up in them on that one. But, you know, there are movies that I will not see in a year because they look awful or I've never seen the other ten movies of the franchise. But, you know, like, I've loved all the Star Wars movies that have come out in the recent years, and most of them were on my top ten list. I just added Promising Young Woman to my top ten list. That's why I haven't, like... I will always, on New Year's Eve, release, like, my tentative top 50 list that I have at the current moment, but I always add, but I still haven't gotten a chance to see this, 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 and this movie, so it's the unofficial list. And I usually wait until, you know, March, April, when I finally get to see everything, um, to publish it. This year, I think I'll be able to do it in February when I get to see The Father. Um, but I'm not going to consider the movies that didn't do at least like a one-week run in 2020. Like French Exit did a random qualifying release in December. So I'm going to put it on my 2020 list. It's a movie I love and I want to reward it now. I don't really care about waiting on it. Anyways, I'm really tired and I'm about to crash while I'm talking. <laughs> so, um, have a Merry Christmas. It's been a shit year, so I hope you got something good to make you feel good. And hopefully the government can get their fucking shit together. So I don't have to worry about <laughs> finding where the fuck I'm going to get rent money for the next month. And also, <laughs> you know, eat enjoy media that I have to forcibly pay for because they refuse to do a theatrical release at an AMC where I can use my A-list for because, you know, that's what I'm paying $20 a month for, the access to multiple movies. Um, yeah, you know, come back next week. We're going to do the end-of-the-year list. I don't know. Maybe there's a musical number in Wonder Woman. Maybe there's one in this new Pinocchio movie that came out of nowhere that, I mean, I'm sure there's something. Um, News of the World, I'm sure, has a musical number somewhere. Um, but until then, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. And also, I'm about to fall asleep.
In bumper music, it was both versions of White Christmas. The opening performed by Bing Crosby and the finale by the entire cast. Both songs written by Ernie Bumper. and Davis are flat, you know. We've got to get some loot. We've got to take the show to Chicago or oh, no, Boston. No, I, I can't make it. I'm going to be very busy. I, wait a minute. I'll join you. 